Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from the Star Wars Universe podcast. And I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 108, which begins with telling us that this is a Kenneth Branagh film and ends with a credit for visual effects production assistant Patrick Barris. Joining us on the show today, as every day this week, we have Paul Hoppy, a.k.a. Zen Madman, a poker professional, writer, musician, martial artist, and a frequent guest of mine on Superhero Ethics and the Star Wars Universe podcast. Um, Paul, one thing I, I know we talk about a lot when I have you on is your martial arts background. And um, you, you've been a martial arts teacher. You're a black belt in Taekwondo, a quite high, highly ranked black belt. How has like having that much experience of fighting – affected how you see movies like this where, where, you know, fight scenes are a pretty big part of them. Anytime you have a skill at something and then you see a movie where either people are doing that skill or they're uh, the plot centered around it, I think there's, you know, you can see it and be like, mm, that feels right or that doesn't feel right. And so action scenes to me definitely jump out at me if they look like very fake um, or if they're very convincing or like super cool and creative and it's like oh that's an interesting ta- technique you know like in the new season of cobra kai someone i think uses a u-shaped punch which i'm like oh you don't you don't see that that much it's where they're like punching with both hands and one's high and one's low and it's just a really weird technique but you know from having done that in in certain patterns in taekwondo it's like things jump out at me um and so here especially like the stunts you know the fight choreography and the stunts definitely um kind of resonate in a particular way yeah, because what we're leading is how how would you see this movie overall in terms of its fight choreography? In terms of like if Shang Chi and, and a couple others are kind of like the gold standard, and eh, maybe some some others are, are are pretty pretty low. Where where would this one rank? I mean, it's fine. You know, I, I feel like the action in this movie isn't really the centerpiece. You know, I I don't have any complaints about it, but it doesn't feel um, like super creative all the time. And it's, you know, it's not really martial arts based so much as, um, you know, hammer throwing and, you know, spear stabbing. Not that those aren't martial arts, but, you know, not what we think of as as martial arts. Thor is not a high dex character. It is a high strength. Yeah, exactly. Um, Strength and stamina and just, just bludgeoning, you know? So, um, one of the things I really enjoyed in, in Avengers, uh, which I bring up because Thor's style of fighting is, it's so one of the things I enjoyed in the Avengers movie was that you had all these heroes who had very distinct styles of fighting, you know, and here, um, I guess that's sort of present, but I, I feel like they could have um, kind of fleshed out the Warriors 3 a little bit more. You know, Sif gets a couple moments. Um, you know, Loki does some stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's something that as this is, I would say it's an action movie, right? It's a it's a blockbuster. Um, maybe Kenneth Branagh kind of wasn't as, like, that wasn't, that didn't rank super high in terms of what was most important to Kenneth Branagh, you know, and I don't, I don't think this is badly done. You know, I think everybody did a good job, but it's not like, it doesn't feel inspired to me. Yeah. We, we talked a while ago about, especially when he's showing not like one-on-one combat, but like the, the war scenes, like when it's, you know, Thor and all the, the warriors three fighting the Jotuns or even more the, the opening scenes of the, the, the Asgardian army against the, the Jotun army. 
and there, like his his real experience with with action had been the the war scenes in in Henry V, the Shakespearean mm, play that yeah. he turned into a movie, and yeah, so it was much more that kind of like the chaos of warfare as a as a dynamic to to play upon rather than like a cool action shot. Um, which yeah, I think it, it works for this movie where. Thor's ability to fight is never really in question. It's it's kind of the whole movie is about him learning what what what's the thing that's not a nail, so you can't use your hammer on it. Right, exactly. Well, and it's yeah, it's interesting because Kevin Feige and the Marvel team will really start finding different uh, a, a different approach, largely for kind of like their action direction to almost bring on. I mean, there's always been kind of a second unit director who kind of handles all the like the complexities of a lot of that stunt stuff and everything. But really, I think they they really fine tune that as as the uh, kind of the franchise goes along to really find people who perhaps um, are bringing a lot more kind of uh, something very specific, kind of what we're kind of now used to within it. Definitely. We'll get into all that more after this. We're getting close to the end of the season, which means we're going to have a few episodes coming to our members during the hiatus. If you'd like to hear these member bonus episodes that are probably going to be about some of the shows that have been out there, expectations about Thor Love and Thunder, things like that, uh, consider becoming a member. Just go to truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute. You can find out what we offer to our patrons. It's only $5 a month, or you can get a discount if you join at the annual rate. All right, so let's dive right into the credits, and we we start by being told that Thor is a Kenneth Branagh film, and so we've kind of talked about the different actors, and Andy, you and I have talked about different moments of uh, like what Branagh did, and what worked, and what didn't. But overall, how do we feel Branagh did as a director for this movie? I mean, I like it. I'm glad that he was the person that that they decided let's let's bring Branagh on because of like those big big Shakespearean family, like royal family. Uh, elements that we have in the film. I mean, okay, yeah, the action, it's not always as strong in this particular film as we're going to have in later films. But damn, if the family dynamics in this film don't just sing. I mean, it's just, it's so exciting to watch all of those scenes between uh, the brothers and the father and kind of like just the way that all of it plays out is so Shakespearean. It's just like, of course, Kenneth Branagh. And that's what everybody says about it. It's like, of course, they're going to bring Kenneth Branagh on the, uh, because of that type of Shakespearean storytelling that he does. I, I, I think it's not a perfect film, but, uh, and it's not Kenneth Branagh's best film, but in, in the realm, in the scope of, of what the Marvel cinematic universe is doing, I think it was a really creative and strong choice for this particular story to kind of help the MCU kind of continue toward the Avengers. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I said that the action choreography doesn't feel inspired, but the choice of Kenneth Branagh does feel like an inspired choice, and the movie feels inspired, right? It feels like it is imbued with some feeling, like like it is a project that, you know, I think Kenneth Branagh had a, a, a vision of how he wanted it to come together, and I think it comes together in a way that really does work. And I think kind of his story is is such a nice kind of microcosm of of everything that was happening at this time, of like getting people to take comic book movies more seriously because 
Um, I remember, like, growing up, I, I, you know, I liked the Spider-Man movies. I liked the Tim Burton Batman movies, uh, which Paul and I just recently did some coverage of to get ready for the new Batman movie. But at the time, I kind of had a, like, my sense was that to Hollywood people and people who cared about movies, like, there was move, there was cinema, and then there was, like, schlocky stuff. And the comic books definitely fell into the schlock category. And when I first heard Kenneth Branagh was directing this, uh, I didn't know anything about the Thor character. I didn't know anything about the attempt to be Shakespearean. My first thought was, wow, that man is desperate for a paycheck. What happened? Um, <laughs> and so this has been such a great experience for me of realizing, like, no, this was something he – A, because I kind of had to catch my own prejudice of – when I realized that Kenneth Branagh is someone who grew up reading comic books, like, that – it blew my mind, you know, and like that shouldn't be a thing. And I think it's part of what I think was what we mean about how the MCU and DC to some extent as well is just breaking down the idea of like who is a comic book reader and who who cares about superheroes and who doesn't, you know. But just I feel like his love of that and his love of Shakespeare and his being able to see those dynamics in this and pull them out, you know, it's it's too bad I think that a lot that this movie isn't better in a lot of the other aspects because I think. I, I kind of wish that I, I think this movie had a chance to really like put the foot down and be like, no, this is not schlock. This is serious movie making we're doing that's discussing serious family themes as much as any other movie out there. We just also have some cheesy special effects. Um, you know, that didn't happen, but it's kind of fun to, to look back on it now and to see all that Brando was doing in that regard. Yeah, I, I've always kind of felt like there are a lot more people who are into, you know, comic books and superheroes and people enjoy action movies, you know, they, they make the most money for a reason. Right. And I think, um, you know, Branna, I think was a great choice to kind of really continue in that direction of trying to, to make it feel more, I don't know, um, prestigious or whatever, but I mean, you know, I mean the first, the, the first Superman movie Marlon Brando was in, you know, yeah, and that's true. like that's Jack true. Nicholson was in the first Batman movie and Christopher Nolan was a respected director when he did Batman Begins. You know, I, I think, you know, Marvel, like they did, I mean, and Ian McKellen and, and Patrick Stewart, right. In the, the yeah, X-Men movies, right, right. like this, this was something that was already moving in this direction. Um, but I, I do think this was an important kind of step along that road. Um, as well as like, I mean, Edward Norton for everything people say about the incredible Hulk, like I think he was a very respected actor and I think yeah. he rewrote the movie, but then didn't get the writing credit. And it was all complicated, but like he was in that, I think after he'd been nominated for an Oscar for, um, Oh, the movie where he's on trial. Yeah, with Richard Gere. Primal Fear. Oh, Primal Fear. That's it. Thank you. Uh, and so the other one was we don't get the credit for uh, Patrick Doyle at this moment, but we get the end of his music. So it's kind of a, a nice moment to, to talk about. Uh, we talked about the music a little bit before with the music supervisor, but just, yeah, the score, the the different themes, many of which still carry on to, all the way through Endgame. I know that the MCU often gets criticized for being kind of not very musically innovative with the movies. And I think I think there's some real truth to that. But I also think that, like, there's a very, like, every moment, I until 10 seconds from now, I never really felt like that the, the music and what's happening on the screen were clashing. Like, I always, we, I think I've often talked about how good the score is at conveying what's happening in that moment. His music is just uh, perfect for the film. He created such a big, bombastic theme for Thor that he's been able to... Um, kind of rework time and time again 
uh, to create different emotions with it. Like, I mean, we had just such a melancholic version of it on piano just a few minutes ago, like as the film was ending and, and we had kind of that, the pining between Thor and Jane. It's just, it's so beautiful. And uh, yeah, I've just, I've been so happy with re-listening to his music so much throughout the course of this. And it does make me wish that um, that his themes, uh, that he had been able to kind of continue with the different Thor films to kind of keep that music alive. I mean, I, I'm happy with where they've ended. I, I really love Mark Mothersbaugh and what he did in in uh, in uh, in Ragnarok. But it's just like, God, there's something just so majestic about the music here. And in context of that big Shakespearean story... I mean, it's obvious why he works with Brana so much because they work so well together. But I just, I love what they did here. And I do really wish that there were more films that stood out for me in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with great scores. Yeah, I feel like the music is very effective and it it does swell when the action swells and it, it's very dramatic. It feels like, I think one of the things that people sometimes criticize is it's not, it doesn't feel like iconic to me. Like there's no, you know... um, there's no theme that like the Star Wars kind of themes or yeah, you know some the Superman theme right and and I mean maybe there is and just people haven't latched onto it as much because Thor is like this subset of this larger universe I don't know but um, but it, it does really work and there's there's nothing um, I feel like there, there's there's nothing it doesn't feel out of step and sometimes I, I find musical cues can feel like too overt but here it feels like it, it kind of like just sweeps very smoothly um with the the narrative you know we talked last week about the the really powerful scene the movie's ending and the the warriors three and all the rest of the people of asgard are at this banquet and everyone's having this great time but clearly you know all of our main characters on asgard um thor odin um uh, Frigga and and Sif um, all are like they're kind of like that that sort of at the banquet but not celebrating they're they're in a much more morose mood and just the music is so perfect for capturing that you know and so much of it is is silence as these characters are wa- walking and looking at each other and the music is so perfect so let's have a transition on music discussion because. <laughs> I feel like this movie did a good job of pairing the world of Asgard with the world of Earth, and I thought there was going to be a major clash there, but the only clash I have is, what the hell are the Foo Fighters doing in this movie? Because I don't, it it doesn't really matter that much, but like, it felt so out of place when the song started. And I know we've had the song a little bit in the movie already, but still. Yeah. Well, I think that's largely the only reason why. I mean, it fits learning to walk again. This is a story about kind of like getting back on your feet. Um, but and it's cheaper if if they you know, they could probably work a better deal if they said, you know, we're going to feature you in the movie and during the end credits. That's fair. it's probably easier. But it's uh, gosh, the song hits. And every time I'm just like, oh, God, I have to listen to this now. <laughs> it's just it's not a song that I really care for that much. And so it's just one of those things where I'm like, Meh. all right, I wish it was only in the scene in the movie and not also an end credits song. But to, to me, it, it um, sort of restates how much the the music the score throughout the movie really does feel so appropriate to the tone of the movie and sets the tone of the movie that this song playing over the end credits to me just takes me out of it i'm like okay 
yeah. I guess the movie's so over. Jarring. Like now <laughs> we're just sitting here watching credits and it doesn't, it, it just feels like, I, I don't particularly like the song, but like, I mean, for Iron Man, they had a layup, right? Like, yeah. you yeah. know, you can't, you can't always have a layup like that, but like end credits songs are, I think often it's just like, well, this is on the soundtrack and they want dollars and, and there's some deal that someone cut. And it just, it, it, to me, it just took me right out of the experience of the movie, which, um, Andy, you said something, I think in the, the first episode this week, um, where, you know, you like to sit there and kind of sort of like feel the movie at the ends, like while watching the yeah, credits. Right. And for me, when the music really matches the feel of the movie, I really like that. Like that kind of, it's like a little processing time. And here it's kind of like, no, nope, done processing. Like, yep. <laughs> it's like you're in the car and you're listening to the radio now. Like it, it just feels, mm-hmm. it felt very jarring to me. Yeah. It, it reminded me of kind of like there was that period in the 90s where it was very popular to like crank out the CDs of music inspired by the film. Right. It wasn't necessarily, you know, music that was in the film. I mean, they still do that, but it just seemed to really hit in the 90s. And, and there was always that song that was written by somebody big like U2 or somebody that's just to play in the end credits and only to sell albums. And it has no connection to the film at all, but it's like, and sometimes it's a great song. And sometimes it's like, what the hell is this song doing in this movie? Like it just, there's a complete disconnect and it's all for dollars. And it just, uh, you know, this song just hits like that. It just, it feels like that. I mean, I know it is in the film, but it just feels so uh, not connected at all. I also will say, I don't think it bothered me as much when I watched it then because I think that one thing that has changed in I mean there've always been great songs in in movies don't get me wrong I mean going back to Casablanca for for sure but like I do feel like in the last 10 years or so having not only a great score but a great soundtrack to a movie has really become even uh, I mean it's not entirely new by any means because like even back then I mean like the Batman movie we talked about the Prince soundtrack the Prince soundtrack is essential to it but like to me I think of, to me the gold standard at least in the moment is uh into the spider Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse where the char- a big part of the characters is love of music and like I don't remember much of the score, but I remember so many of the songs that are so perfect for different parts of the movie. What's Up Danger, especially. And so every song that plays during the credits is like, oh, yeah, this song that captures this. And yeah, it's it's I, I don't think Thor stood out at, at any point. I don't think like I think most movies you're probably like, all right. Yeah, here's the pop song that comes at the end of the movie. But watching it today, it's just not pleasant. No, no. Um, Kind of, kind of moving on with some of the other credits. Um, Andy, you've been like burying the lead here because apparently you were involved in this movie. As I saw the credit, re-recording <laughs> mixer Andy Nelson. Oh uh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. There's a reason that I wanted to do- talk about this movie. I was just do- going a roundabout way to get there. Yeah, so it, it is uh, a different Andy Nelson, but it one, is it one is, thing I want to yes. kind of do is just you know kind of talk about some of these different roles. We're not going to be able to talk about everyone, but um, I have no idea what a re-recording mixer is. Uh, is that a role that either one of you have a kind of firm idea of what that means? Well, interestingly, uh, on on my podcast, The Next Reel, we had another uh, string of shows that we were doing called The Speakeasy, where we were bringing on people from the industry to talk about one of their favorite movies. And I was obsessed with tracking down re-recording mixer Andy Nelson, <laughs> just because I thought it would be funny if Andy Nelson and Andy Nelson were talking on a show together. And so we got him, and we talked about Local Hero, which is one of his favorite films, uh, Bill Forsythe's film. Um, and so it was really fun to kind of talk about him and what he does. I mean, he's huge. I mean, he's big in the industry. I, I was hoping to get him on as a guest with this show, but he he said, you know, I really only, I don't have a lot of memories from that film. I only did it because I really wanted to work with Brana, and that was really it. But I mean, he's very much 
um you know a guy who just he he does like all of spielberg's films like he just did west side story and he's done all the star wars movies i mean he's just he's big a re-recording mixer takes all the audio and um, they're not doing the sound design but they will take all like a lot of the levels especially with the dialogue and they will kind of balance it out so that that everything you're hearing everything at kind of like the levels that you want them to be playing at um and and kind of but it largely is focused on kind of like the dialogue and stuff so um but yeah he he does a lot of that post work and it's uh it's interesting to kind of um hear him talking about it and it's still i i still like there are so many people involved in so many different levels of the audio world that i still find it confusing i'm like wait a minute wait, wait, then who's doing this but yeah because then they also re-record some lines sometimes right you're so, right yeah absolutely yeah yeah we were talking about how uh at that very scene at the end where all of Heimdall and Thor's dialogue is we never see their lips moving to say that dialogue. And so, yeah, that could have been shot with completely different dialogue. We have no idea. Um, now, we also in this minute of credits get a lot about the stunt doubles and the stunt coordinators and oh, stuff like that, yes. which, which I think is the stunt doubles especially is often one of the most underappreciated and often, frankly, one of the most dangerous jobs in Hollywood. Uh, you think about some of the many injuries, uh, some tragic deaths that have occurred. Um, and one thing that jumped out at me is that the list like the, the actors who have credited stunt doubles include Thor, Loki, Sif, Hogan, Fandral, Eric, Eric Selvig, Heimdall, uh, Odin, Laufey. Darcy and Volstag have uncredited stunt doubles we'll talk about, but the one other on the credited stunt doubles list is Stan Lee. And <laughs> I, I don't remember this. I, 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 we watched it four months ago, so forgive me for not having a perfect memory of it. But I, the idea of Stan Lee having such a small part in these movies to begin with, and also that he has a stunt double, I guess it's because he's driving the truck. Yeah, that's right. He's driving yeah. the truck yeah. to try to pull up. And the, so, and the truck, yeah, the whole yeah. back end breaks off. So it's off, probably so. okay. someone driving the truck and you see the back of their head. So the back of their head has to look like the back of Stan Lee's head. Okay. But they're the stunt driver, probably. Yeah. That would be my right. guess. But Yeah, right, right. But, but that's a funny much. thing. If you think about just like how often stunt – I think we often think of stunt doubles for like the big mm-hmm. action stars. But yeah, just like right, right. anything you do like that, you're probably going to have a stunt double. Which makes exactly. sense. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, uh, Sif's stunt double, Kylie Furneaux, uh, she actually um, won the World Stunt Awards Best Overall Stunt by a Stunt Woman um, for, I'm, I'm assuming it's for the, the telephone pole leap that we see oh, her yeah. do, which is, yeah. was kind of a, a very cool stunt. So it was exciting to see that she did get recognized for that. I, I, and, you know, this is something that I will perpetually have a gripe with the Oscars that they don't recognize uh, stunt performers because I think they're such an important part of films and i'm glad the world stunt awards exist to do it but still it's 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 a big element of the oscars that they're somehow missing it's it's amazing that they they don't have that as a category because i mean because you could have do they have choreography like fight choreography as a they don't don't. so i mean Uh that's such a big part of modern movies sure when the oscars first came out maybe that wasn't you know, uh, a thing to have a category for. But um, I actually did stunts in a 2005 movie called Nightmare. That was a little indie movie. And um, I was fighting a guy and I kept getting flipped. And there's this pad you're supposed to land on. And I landed on the pad a bunch of times. And, you know, that didn't feel the best. But I also landed on my head on a concrete floor probably <laughs> 20 times Ouch. through the course of shooting this. And, um, you know, it it... The next day, the stunt director um, 
uh, was Marcos Antonio Miranda was who actually did stunts for a bunch of other things. Um, he was like, you'll feel sorry tomorrow. I'm like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I, I do Taekwondo like six days a week, like four hours a day. The next day I was so sore <laughs> from doing stunts <laughs> one day that like, I don't know, I got a new appreciation for, you know, what people do, which is obviously very dangerous. But, you know, he was, he was talking about like um, the stunt director was talking about, how how many things they need stunt people for you know and like on he did the dave Chappelle show and he was like dave will never hold a gun so like there's always got to be a stunt double standing there you know to shoot from behind holding a gun to look like dave because like they don't want him to be you know because he just won't do that and it's like things that are referred to as stunts are it's a very broad range of of activities some of which are very dangerous some of which are are you know pretty straightforward and a lot of and a lot of times it's not just the doubles i mean you have all these people that are credited just as utility stunts right. those are those are stunt performers who are acting yes. and they are you know and and we have a ton of them in this film as shield agents uh you know when thor was running through the fighting or the the various frost giants or or as in harrier guards or or vikings or whoever it is that are just utility stunt players who are, are performing as actors. And, I mean, it's probably a good time to give a shout-out to uh, stunt co- coordinator Andy Armstrong along with, I mean, I'm just going to say, the Armstrong family, they are a big stunt family. And, I mean, second unit director uh, Vic Armstrong also is part of the the stunts in this too. And Vic, James, Scott, Georgina, Wendy, Armstrong, and Andy are all working on the stunts in this film. And I mean, yeah, there's there was a story done. I mean, it was around the time of this film um, where, I mean, they were just talking about kind of all the stuff that they had been doing over the years on, I mean, Indiana Jones films. Uh, Vic would be uh, Harrison Ford's stunt double, double. He was Christopher Reeve's stunt double in the Superman films. Um, you know, they've been on the James Bond films, Tom Cruise's films, Schwarzenegger's, uh, Sylvester Stallone's, Mel Gibson's. I mean, just they're, the work that they do is insane. And as a family, and like they've really kind of brought it up, not just to do great stunts, but I think especially these days, um, a more important thing to remember is that they're working to do it as safely as possible. And I think that's mm-hmm. a very critical element of, of that they bring to the table. Yeah, that's like the biggest challenge, right? To be able to do something convincingly, but also safely when it's something that looks so dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, um, like we were talking about, well, the Oscars not doing it. I, I know that often actors don't want, they don't want people thinking about the fact that they're stunt doubles because they, you know, they want like, yeah, Chris, like you, they want you thinking about them being like awesome, you know, action stars. Um, and, and I, I just bring that up especially because there have been a couple of times, particularly in Marvel movies, but I think I've seen this in some other settings as well. And Scarlett Johansson is the one I, I think about, um, that where the actor sort of makes a point in the kind of the media around the movie to publicly thank and call out and acknowledge the stunt double as the kind of like, you're going to talk about how awesome and badass my character looks. Like most of that wasn't me. It was, uh, I believe in Scarlett Johansson's case, it was Heidi Moneymaker yeah, uh, is the right. name of the, the stunt double. And I just, I, I met, given that I imagine that it's in large part because of the actors that uh, stunt doubles aren't more credited uh, at the Oscars and places like that, though I could be totally wrong there, but either way, I feel like it's a really important thing that actors are starting to draw more attention to that now. 
And I mean, I, I mean, even uh, like Quentin Tarantino was so impressed with um, uh, uh, what's her name? I'm blanking. Uh, Kill Bill's Uma Thurman's stunt double uh, that he started casting her as a performer in his films to also do her own stunts in the films, like in Death Proof and stuff. I mean, it's just it's it's a it's an incredibly impressive uh, line of work that I couldn't do, and I'm so impressed with what they do. And I mean, yeah, I mean the way that some of it was shot in this particular film, it wasn't all always the best and on Jotunheim we talked about it being a little dark and kind of hard to tell all the time but largely it's still like really impressive this the sort of stuff that they are accomplishing here well especially because I mean it's only 10 years ago but CGI has advanced so much in that time yeah you know we mentioned the telephone leap like I don't think I'd be impressed by that today because I assume it was just you know fancy CGI tricks and and the fact that it's not double one award makes me think it was much more of a practical effect at that point. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of stunts that are actually like a person still has to do the thing. You know, it's oh, like the actual st- just because the setting is then kind of like a green screen. It's like it's still often very impressive and dangerous. And I do I do think it's great that there are more actors coming out and you know saying things and kind of dispelling the illusion a little bit. But it's like yeah, you know that's not all me, right? Well, a lot of people's work went into making you know one character look as cool as they do exactly exactly all right well i think that's about a good time to wrap up any other last uh, particular credits or comments either one you wanted to call out there was something i wanted to say last week but it was we were running a little bit long um <laughs> we're running a little less long um the casting i think in the mcu has always been fantastic and is maybe the thing that sets it Whereas, you know, being as successful as it has been, um, there is one bit of casting um, for um, Hogan, I think. Right. Um, yeah, we've, we've talked about. Yeah. That so that, that just um, it, it just stands out to me as sort of I feel like trying to do something that they think is progressive and like doesn't it, it, it kind of rankles, you know. Well, it's interesting. His character in the comics does have a very, uh, I mean, a very kind of like that Fu Manchu style of mustache. Okay. You know, like that's, that's how his character was designed in the comics. Yeah. I don't think it was, you know, intended to be somebody necessarily of uh, kind of an Asian descent because he's as guardian or, or an, I guess, Vanaheim from Vanaheim now. But uh, so it's interesting. I think that's largely why they ended up casting uh, Tadanobu Asano to play him. Um, but it's just, it's it's odd that it does end up feeling um, like a like kind of a misstep. Like it it didn't work the way they intended. Yeah, and for me, part of that is just that he's like the only Asgardian who has an accent that's not kind of British sounding, and so to me, he feels kind of like and a foreigner amongst Asgardian Asgard, which maybe I don't know all of the characters backstory, but it just, it just feels the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, you know, but now I'm after mostly it's after hearing Will's point of view, I'm like, Hmm, yeah, I could see that, you know, and it's, it's not the worst thing in the world by any means. And there's no reason you shouldn't cast a particular actor, but it does just feel a little, I, I think in the comics, he is supposed to be an outsider, mm, but like okay. the fact that that's never acknowledged in this movie. And, well, and yeah, I think, yeah. I think it's, I feel like there was an interesting choice they had of like these myths come from a, a part of the world that is completely you know very white you know Scandinavia and Northern Germany and Iceland and all that and I, and so that's often how they're portrayed and and there is like you know let's let's just be honest like there are some folks who continue to like practice the the uh, ideas of of worshiping these gods a small minority of those who are part of the Asatru faith but some who are 
deeply racist. And it's, it's very important that the Asgard pantheon be all white as a white supremacy awfulness. And I feel like with this movie, they had a really interesting opportunity to sort of say, like, is actual Asgard all white or is it actually a much more racially diverse world where it's just that the Norwegians who were experiencing these people, like, remember them as looking like them over 12 centuries of, of history telling. And yeah, I kind of feel like with the inclusion of Hogan and Idris Elba, like, it seems like they're starting to move towards that, like, no, Asgard isn't all white. It is a racially diverse society. But then, like, having Hogan be an outsider and having, um, as Will said so well last week, you know, having uh, Heimdall be the bouncer who never actually goes to Asgard because he's always got to stand and watch outside. Like, it, it just, it, yeah, I think it all winds up feeling, like, a little off. And I think if you had, like, other black characters or Asian characters in the movie, like it might feel a little different, you know, but the, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's not, it's not the worst thing, you know, but it, it, it feels like they're kind of going for something and maybe kind of missed. Yeah. There, there, I mean, there are some in, in the background actors in Asgard in crowd scenes mm, and yeah. stuff like that, but it's like, you know, in, in, I, I still get your point. It's like, it's not like key characters or anything, you know? I, I'm going to be curious now when I go back and look at Thor the Dark World to look at Vanaheim because, I mean, of all of the Warriors 3, Hogan is really the only one who's given something a little more to do. Right. The other two are just given so little to do in the next two films. Hogan at least has that whole opening in Vanaheim when Thor comes down to kind of help them uh, fight, you know, fight off the the people. And um, but I am going to it's I'm going to want to look around at who's on Vanaheim. Like what were they actually creating its own space or does he still feel like <laughs> the only uh, person from you know uh, asian descent who is cast in that particular place too absolutely absolutely all right well i think uh, andy do you have any last credit you want to point out before we start wrapping up uh, just, uh, you know, this is where we see Ryan Minerding, uh, Charlie Wen, visual development supervisors. Uh, Ryan has been around forever and is a key part of Marvel and does a lot of the design work for bringing this stuff to life. So uh, definitely a shout out for that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so, Paul, you've talked about the poker uh, teaching that you do. We talked about some of your writing. Uh, tell us a bit more about the kind of uh, pod, uh, obviously podcast with me a lot, but what's kind of the your idea of this podcast that might be formed? Yeah, so I mean, I've written a number of pieces of fiction over the years, and I kind of thought I'll just do a podcast where I read them and kind of inspire myself to write some more and and get back into that. So I, I've always thought it would be fun to listen to more fiction podcasts. You know, um, I listen to a little bit of them in, in Spanish sometimes as like a way of, I think it could be a good way of um, kind of learning a language, you know, um, or progressing in a, in a second language or third language. Um, so, so yeah, they're, they're weird stories, mostly um, not super family friendly, <laughs> um, <laughs> but like not super explicit either uh, overall. Cool. Yeah, well, so definitely, audience, check that out. All the links to Paul's fiction, uh, not the podcast yet, but where you can buy it or, or read it online, all will be in the show notes for this. Of course, you can find all my stuff at theethicalpanda.com and find all the other great podcasts that are here on The Next Real family of podcasts at thenextreel.com. On behalf of myself, Paul, Andy, thanks so much for listening in and have a good day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Music